Welcome inside the Legends Lounge, where baseball VIPs are hanging out and talking about their life in the game. Oh, one of my favorite parts of what we do here is the fact that, yes, most of the time we are talking to former players. It's part of the theme of the pod. But also, there are, in my mind, two categories for the most part. It's like recently retired, you know, last few years, five, six years, whatever it is, and then retired a little further back. And I love the blend that we're providing. So we're going a little further back with this one and chatting with Burt Blylevin, but it doesn't feel like, quote, an old timer because I listened to him for quite a while doing Minnesota Twins TV, and he's only recently retired from the broadcast gig. No, and he's kind of like Jim Cott, but obviously younger than Jim, where where he's been in our lives for so long that, you you know, a seamless transition from a 20-some-odd-year career pitching right into kind of talking about it. And they're so good at it. You got to, you know, hand it to them as far as how well and eloquent they are. So I'm looking forward to hearing his stories and obviously about that devastating curveball that he was known for. Bert, bring it. Hall of Famer coming in, 22 seasons in the bigs, racked up innings, nearly 5,000 innings, close to 300 wins, wow. 331 ERA, over 3,700 strikeouts, two-time All-Star, two World Series rings, and then a longtime beloved baseball TV analyst as well. Watched him for years, Burt Blylevin in the lounge. Burt, great to yeah, chat. Baby. How's life and where are you at? I'm in Fort Myers, Florida. It's an honor to be on. I'm looking forward to talking to you guys, Scott, O, and Ryan. You know, you, oh, you and I were teammates for a while back in uh, ni- 1988. Do you remember that? Unbelievable, buddy. Yes, I do, sir. <laughs> How could I not? I mean, I was just happy to be in the big leagues back then. And um, it's, it's just a pleasure because, you know, as Scotty B knows, not only that I, I was a proud to, be, you know, be a, call myself a former major league baseball player, but I'm also kind of a historian of the game, Cuban-born. So having you on, I think hits a lot of uh, uh, a lot of checkoffs for me, including my goodness, 287 wins uh, in the Hall of Fame. Obviously, as Scotty aforementioned, but right off the bat, I'm going to hit you with uh, when you first got called up in the Minnesota Twins, and and that experience with so many people on that Twins team from the Cuban side uh, were mentors to me, like Camilo Pascual, you know, Paul Casanova. Um, you know, that came over from obviously from Washington. Uh, you know, how was that? And and uh, and your first few tastes of the big leagues? Well, guys like Zolan Precise and stuff like that. When I came up in 1970, I was less than a year out of high school. Uh, I knew of, you know, Rod Carew, Tony Oliva, Harmon Killebrew, Bob Allison. Uh, just, you know, this year, actually, oh, we put in Tony Oliva finally into the Hall of Fame, you know, Minnie Minoso. I was on hey, both committees. Just many also. Very yeah. honored to get these guys in that were long overdue. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> when I came up, I was just 19 years old. You know, back then, you were to be seen and not heard from. And that's kind of the way you go through it. Uh, today's game is a little bit different. But, uh, you know, the memories of everybody I played with throughout my career, 22 years, uh, will stick with me the rest of my life. How was, though, as a teammate? Before we get into your life, 
well, you know, when you wasn't pitching, you had to find the place on the bench, and O was always right there, right next to me. So it was I was all right. young <laughs> and, 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 and willing to learn and playing behind guys that were a little better than me. So uh, it was, uh, yeah, thank you, buddy. But uh, I, I tell you, um, one more thing. I, it was a funny story that I was told by, and I'm not going to, you probably know it, but but the TC, what did the TC stand for in uh, in Minnesota when it first got over there? Well, Twin Cities, of course, you know, Minneapolis, no. Paul. Yeah, but the funny thing was that um, uh, Paul Casadori once told me, too many Cubans, because they came <laughs> all from the Washington, from the, from the Senators, and there were so many Cuban ballplayers that, that at one point the, the Cubanos were going, hey, is the TC for uh, too many Cubans on this team? <laughs> I don't know if you had ever heard that one, but that's I think the labor great Casanova. Yeah, in 65, when the Twins went to the World Series, even though they lost to the Dodgers, they, they had five, six Cubans on that yep. ball club. Julio Piquer was there. Again, Tony Oliva, you know, Versailles, Pasquale, which had the honor when I first came up, got to watch him pitch a little bit. He was already not in the Twins organization anymore, but, uh, you know, he had right. an outstanding curveball too. Oh, my gosh. Did oh, did he pull any pranks on you? Because... Mr. Blylevin was was known for right. specifically he had it's funny you know pitcher has his arsenal apparently your arsenal in terms of pranks maybe your strikeout pitch was the hot foot is that true <laughs> <laughs> well you know what when you pitch once when I came up we pitched every fourth day uh, now you pitch every fifth or sixth day whatever it is but uh, you know pitcher what else do I have to do you know <laughs> you have- try to keep guys loose and uh that was kind of i got that from my pops you know when he came home from work every day he always had a joke we had a lot of fun he taught me the game of baseball so uh coming from holland uh you know it was it uh i think my parents were so elated and so happy to be in the united states that they they were very they were great people and uh you know my dad always had a joke every night like i said and when i became a baseball player of course you know, when you first come up, again, you're, you're to be seen and not heard from, but time passes, and then you can relax a little bit, and uh, you can light guys' shoes on fire, and blow up toilets and stuff like that, whatever, uh, you know, seems <laughs> to uh, come into play during that time. You you, you had a, a, a kind of a litany of uh, different things that you were known <laughs> for, but going back, just like you said, Matt, I think it's fascinating that people understand that you, you were born, you know, you were from Holland, you're Europe, you know, European in a sense, and uh, baseball not being the number one sport there. You know, take us back to the early days and and uh, how this came about, other than having a great arm and a great athlete and determination, but at such a young age to be able to, to you know, to spry up to the big leagues and, and being from, from a different country that probably, you know, soccer has to be the big sport. Yeah, when you know, I was born in Holland, but I was two years old when we left. We went to Canada for four years. We immigrated into the United States in 1957, and in 1962, my parents became U.S. citizens. But uh, that's kind of when I started playing baseball. Uh, you know, we lived in Southern California. We moved from Paramount, California, to Garden Grove, and about the third grade, all the my friends I hung out with all played Little League. And that's really when uh, I, I had a paper out in the morning had to prove to my mother that I had a good arm so she could buy me a glove and some shoes uh, because they didn't make a lot of money. So, you know, finally, when I started playing a little league, I started off as a catcher uh, because uh, I didn't have a glove. 
So every team had the gear, and I start off as a catcher. And finally, my coach, I remember Mr. Price, who's a fireman, a volunteer, uh, our little league coach. He saw me throwing the ball back harder probably to the pitcher than he was throwing to me. So he said, do you want to pitch? I said, sure, I'll try it. And I fell in love with it. Fell in love with it. Uh, my dad was a huge Dodger fan. He listened to an interview with Sandy Koufax. And Sandy, had, talking with uh, Vin Scully, uh, said if he ever had a son, he wouldn't let him throw a curveball because, of course, Koufax had the arthritic elbow until he was about 14 years old. So I learned my curveball. Listening to Vin Scully describe Koufax's drop uh, mm. at that time, uh, and that, that became my curveball. But everything set um, every, my curveball was set up because I could throw my fastball or I had to. You know what I notice sometimes when we do these interviews, Bert, is the impact of the family of the parents at a very young age. So you mentioned you're not allowed to throw a curveball until, what, age 14? 13, 14 13, years 13, old. 14. Yeah. And then your father built you a mound in the backyard? Yes, he did. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's not common for everyone that's growing up that aspires to, I mean, let alone play major league baseball, just be a good ball player in their local area. So how much of an impact did the fam have? And and of course, you know, when you're a kid at the time, you might not realize it, but when you look back, we've spoken to hall of famers and big time, former big leaguers that, you know, had certain hitting cages. And I'm not talking about the fancy stuff where it's like, Oh, my parents built me this, you know, this multi-million dollar facility in the backyard. A lot of times it's, hey, my dad, you know, became Mr. Fix-It and, and took a bunch of tools together and built a little pitching machine or whatever it is. So how much did that impact you making it to where you are? Because when you're a kid, it means so much to develop like that. Well, my dad made it fun, too, because if we ever lost a ball game, he chased the umpire to the car. Uh, <laughs> he was one of those. He, he, he was a, he was a stubborn Dutchman, and uh, I think I think I got a lot of my stubbornness from him. But you know what? Uh, uh, when he would come home from work, when he when he when my parents came to the United States with us, he was a bumper straightener. He straightened you know steel bumpers out, and then a lot of times there were seven of us kids. He'd straighten our head out. But oh uh, uh, you know, but he would find time to play catch with me when he got home. He loved baseball. He loved listening to the Dodger games on. On, on the air with uh, Vince Scully and Jerry Doggett at that time. A lot of the games weren't televised, but he would play catch with me. And finally, as I got older, probably 15, 16 years old, I started, uh, you know, throwing a little bit harder. And that's when he built, we, we had a horseshoe pit in the backyard and he put the mound on one end of one horseshoe pit and then put a, a mesh fence down that I could throw against the tarp uh, into a strike zone. And I always... And I played other sports. I played football. I ran cross country, had a scholarship for basketball out of high school. I wasn't going to go. I was going to go play baseball. I ended up signing by the twins, but uh, my dad was my biggest fan. Uh, My dad, he was my mentor, really. And, uh, you know, we're all lucky to have parents that uh, love us and give us the opportunity to be what you want to be in life. But uh, my mom and dad were there every step of the way. That's a great because a lot of times, especially, you know, with ethnic parents, as I did also a Cuban dad, but, you know, obviously baseball is, you know, big coming from Cuba, uh, but he didn't really, he wasn't really a good athlete. He was a little semi-pro boxer, so they would just learn it. And it sounds like your dad assimilated the sport as a fan and whatever little thing you have to do. That gets you, Bert, to 
the big leagues very quickly. You got drafted by a you know a young Minnesota Twins team that that was looking to to make some moves with some young players. And talk about I, I want to know. I'm always I'm always intrigued because I had the different track of going through A ball, double A, triple A. You know, finally getting there of a, a you know those Al K lines that a person like yourself at 19 years old in the big leagues facing, you know, these great hitters of the early seventies. Well, you know what? I, out of high school, I didn't think I was all that good. I was ready to, you know, go try, try baseball. My dad basically said, Hey, you know, they're offering you $15,000. Get out of here. Get out of the house. Go play. <laughs> so I, I did, you know, Don't fix bumpers. Yeah. Go, go one, one less mouth to feed, but, uh, you know what? Uh, when I went, I went to a rookie ball. I was there for about a month. Uh, I got called up to single A my first year to Orlando, Florida for the Twins. And then they said, how many guys want to play instructional league? Of course, a lot of guys were homesick already. I wasn't. I wanted to go play. I raised my hand, you know, and uh, I got to play. And my first, I was, we were 8-0 down in instructional league in St. Petersburg, Florida. So my first year, I was like 15-2, and two, uh, combined all those three teams. I got invited to big league camp uh, as really as an 18 year old, not on the 40 man roster. Well, I got to watch Jim Cott, Jim Perry, Louis Tion, Dave Boswell. Those were the four starters for the twins at that time. I got to see what they did to prepare themselves for an outing and all the running we did, you know, uh, uh, between starts to make sure that our foundation was strong. Those are all things I, I learned. I got sent down, the first cut, of course, I wasn't on the 40-man roster. I got sent down to AAA only because Ralph Rowe, my manager in instructional league, took me to AAA. And uh, I was still 18 years old when that season started. And then uh, the end of May, Louis T. and Dave Boswell got hurt in the big leagues. And I just pitched a game in, uh, I think it was, uh, well, in AAA that uh, I struck out 17 and in 10 innings and won one to nothing over uh, Tony La Russa was on that ball club, the Oakland A's. So uh, I guess uh, the timing was right, and I got called up uh, in late June uh, in 1970. What was it like being the youngest player in the bigs in 1970? Were there some pros and cons to that? I think it was late May. I don't know when it was. But uh, no, I I mean, it was an honor. But uh, what helped me was being in spring training and, you know, rubbing shoulders with Harmon Killebrew and, Rod Carew and Tony Oliva, and especially Jim Cott being a fellow Dutchman who finally we just put into the Hall of Fame, which well-deserved. But, uh, you know, having that opportunity, and Jim was a fellow Dutchman. Jim was born in uh, Zeeland, Michigan, as I was born in Holland, and he kind of took me uh, in as a younger brother. So you need those Mm -hmm. guys, you need those mentors as we come up to the big leagues to kind of give us that baton, and now it's up to us what we do with that baton. Listen, quite a diverse team, really, when you think about the Minnesota Twins of the early 70s, uh, with you, when you had yourself and, and obviously Kitty, you know, both from, from basically, you know, European backgrounds and culture growing up, uh, you know, American, but Dutch American. And also you had like the Panamanian, you had the Cubans, you had, you know, black players, you had the, the Harmon Killebrews. Um, I mean, a very impressive team. Uh, as far as the offense, me being a former hitter, who, who was the guy that you kind of felt like was just the beast of all beasts uh, on on that those early uh, Twins teams? Well, of course, Harmon Killebrew, you know, 583 yeah. home runs. Uh, Bob Allison out in the left field had a lot of power. 
as far as getting on base, uh, Cesar Tovar. Yes. From Venezuela. We just put him into the Twins Hall of Fame about uh, two weeks ago. And then you have Rod Carew, you know, that has a magic wand. He was so fun to hit, you know, 332 career hitter. Uh, then Tony Oliva. Tony Oliva, I swear, I, t- I told Tony one time, I was sitting on the bench, and I don't know who was pitching, but the pitcher actually bounced the ball in front of home plate, and Tony hit it on the first bounce for a home run over the right field fence. <laughs> How do you pitch to Tony Oliva? You just basically throw him down the middle because, like Vladimir Guerrero or those guys like that, they're going to hit everything. Kirby Puckett was that way. So I had the opportunity to be – you know, a couple times in, in the seventies and then in the eighties sure. coming back with a twin. So I got to watch a lot of these guys, not only you know, as a player, but then as a broadcaster over the years, guys like Joe Maurer, uh, Puck and, you know, Herbeck and Gaetti and so many great players. Okay. So Bert guide me through a few notable years and a few notable situations. So for example, I'm going to start with 1973, you're an all-star and then in 1974, as most would, when you're putting together a big season, you want to race. A little different back then how it would work. So <laughs> how did that go when you go to ownership? And you're probably asking for an amount that equivalent to nowadays is maybe, what, like a few Max Scherzer pitches? Well, I'll go back a couple of years. In 19, this is Calvin Griffith, who was the owner of the Twins, uh, a minimum salary was 10500 when I came up. It jumped to 11000 in 1971. He sent me a contract, a split contract, from for minor leagues and uh, uh, with the Twins. If I make the ball club, it's 11000 My mom, my dad said, gosh, darn it, and I'm being clean. You deserve more than that. I was rookie pitcher of the year, 1970. So he says, you sent your contract back, which I did. And... Uh, Finally, Kelvin Griffith uh, asked me to come into his office. I was up in Minnesota on the caravan, and I sat there, and I know I sat outside his office for about an hour, and I know but nobody was in his office. He wanted me to see this 19-year-old sweat, and I did. So finally, I, I, he opened the door, shook my hand. Mr. Griffith, how are you? He said, fine, very good. How are you, son? Sit down. He had me sit down on a couch that had no springs. My butt is basically on the floor. He's in his high desk. I'm looking up at God now asking for a $4,000 raise because I'd like to have 15,000. Well, that didn't work out. He gave me 12. And then he told me, I'll tell you what, you won 15 or more games your first four year. I'll give you a $2,000 bonus, but I can't put it in the contract. He wrote it down on a piece of paper. I won 16 games at the end of the season. I called, would like to have my $2,000 bonus. He didn't know that he signed anything like that. And thank goodness I kept that little piece of paper <laughs> and I got my $2,000 bonus. Uh, I had to make a copy of it, of course, but that was twins and baseball really back then. The player didn't, didn't have any rights. Uh, what the players association did and the players did way back when is get Marvin Miller involved. And when Marvin Miller finally, I was in eight lockouts and strikes throughout my career from 1970 to 1992. Um, you know, they're, they're ugly. But these players today should, should really thank everybody that played when we did or I did uh, for all the sacrifices we made, losing games, losing money uh, to get to where the players are today. The game is completely different in today's game. 
Bert, I'm going to start calling you, you know, uh, Boris Blylevin, I think. <laughs> uh, you were quite, well, the, quite the agent for yourself, only because, of course, you were, you know, probably, you know, shit scared sitting in that couch, but you kept the piece of paper and then you made a copy of it. That was genius. You know well, what I mean? When you think about yeah, it, I got you go, I've got to have something here. You know, I got to show dad something. Yeah, 1971, $2,000 was a lot of money, you know? Heck so yeah. uh, thank goodness I kept it. That's awesome, man. Uh, what about, you know, moving on? In 1976, I found it interesting and curious. So you get traded in the middle of the season. Obviously, a Texas team that wanted to get a young, you know, pitcher that already had a few years and was shown he was an all-star. You pitch a no-hitter on the last day before you leave the Twins. Is that not correct, if I remember that right? No, I was with the Texas Rangers. You were the Rangers going. You were yes, getting traded. I, I knew that story where, where you ended up throwing a no-hitter and then you ended up getting traded after that. So, I mean, yeah, like, no, thanks, in, guys. In, Bye-bye. In, yeah, 1976, uh, Danny Thompson, my roommate, and I uh, were going to be free agents because we were not going to sign the contract. And Calvin gave us a 20% cut. So we're going to be free agents, and he ended up uh, trading us to Texas. Well, I was there in 1976, along with Danny and myself, until 77. Uh, Danny passed away, actually, in 1976, my roommate of leukemia uh, out of uh, Capron, Oklahoma. But uh, but I was there in 1977. Uh, my last game I pitched with the Texas Rangers in September 22nd, 1977, was a no-hitter. Uh, and then... You know, the season was over with. I had only come back and pitched one game only because I was on the injured list, disabled list with a pulled groin. And I re-aggravated in the eighth inning. And I kept, I remember Billy Hunter came out and he said, how are you doing? I said, look at the scoreboard. And I don't have, <laughs> I'm not coming out. So I, I kept doing it. I re-aggravated my groin in the eighth inning. I went out for the ninth and just threw nothing but curveballs because I could shorten my stride up a little right. bit and just, just, kind of disappear, try to hit it and hopefully hit it at somebody. And they did, but uh, no. And, and then Brad Corbett, the owner, after the season was over with, he, uh, he said, uh, you know, we'll get a chance to get Al Oliver from the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Pirates want you. Uh, so I ended up getting traded. So my last start as a Texas Ranger was a no-hitter. Yeah, and then I went to the National cool. League. I guess they yeah. figured I knew the high filter. You figured out the American League, so send them to the National League. No, they knew you were such a hitter. That's what it was, I think. We got to see this guy swing the bat. Wait, but you had signed a, a, a long deal, right? Was it all in that offseason? You sign a deal and they make the trade? Well, when I got traded, uh, Brad Corbett uh, from Minnesota to Texas, you know, I was making 52000 I think. Brad Corbett gave me a three-year guarantee contract. And then before he traded me to Pittsburgh Pirates, he added a couple more years on that. Uh, he was a great owner. Uh, <laughs> and, no, and it's then, Boris Blyleven, I think it was. That's what it was. <laughs> and then I got traded to Pittsburgh. And then uh, because of the uh, what's in the contracts, I got it added another year to that. And I spent, uh, you know, three good years, especially in 1979 when we won the World Series with the Pirates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, I got traded to Cleveland, where we didn't win anything there for five years. And then I got traded back to Minnesota and then out to Anaheim, where I grew up. So it was a nice ride. Nice ride. What was that Pirates team like when you won in 79? Uh, I'll tell you, we had a great clubhouse, man. I mean, yeah. to, 
we had some characters starting with you know pops willie stargell chuck tanner let us be us you know and and chuck was a great manager he's dearly missed uh dave parker was on that ball club manny sanguian adott uh Phil Garner, Tim Foley, Bill Matlock, Bill Robinson, Omar Marino, uh, Mike Eastler, uh, you know, Lee Lacey, uh, Steve Nicosia behind the plate, too. And we had just had a great club and a great pitching staff with Candelaria and Keeson and, and uh, Jim Rooker. I'm trying to think Jim Big Old Bibby was there. We had six or seven guys that could start. Donnie Robinson in his first year. So it was a, it was a great organization. And, of course, of course our closer was uh, – was Kent to Colby. Kent to Colby. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That was a great, and it was a great series. If I remember right, that was the Orioles, right? That you guys yeah. challenged yeah. a team that, you know, you had faced a lot of their guys, you know, in the American league. So um, that was an upstart upcoming Orioles team that I also love because they were, they trained in Miami. I was, I was, you know, born in Cuba, but raised in Miami. So I was an o- Orioles fan also. And, and uh, this, they had some great hitters, but um, Pop Stargell. I mean, you mentioned, you know, Harmon Killebrew. That was another person that I think so beloved, having also myself gotten a chance to play first base and get over to Pittsburgh for a couple of years. Um, I, how, how impactful was that uh, incredible man? Uh, you know what? I mentioned Harmon and you're mentioning, oh, you're mentioning uh, Willie. Willie, what a great man. What a great man he was, of course, Hall of Famer, but uh, just on and off the field. He always came into the clubhouse. You Kirby Puckett was a lot like him. You know, mm-hmm. when somebody walks into the clubhouse and you feel that their presence is there, you know, they just, they come in with a different attitude and you know, okay, hey, Pops is here. We're going to win today. You know, a lot of times you might lose a ball game. Pops would go over and turn the radio up a little bit. And he said, it's over with, let's go. We're going to win tomorrow. Well, you know, he was a leader all the way. He was a great man. Dirty hey, mess. Bro- Bird, I have one more slice of drama that I need to unveil here. So, in, in, and I, I know I'm sure you've talked about it on TV before, but I, I think about, you know, working nowadays in the game and, and I'm with different managers each week when I'm calling games and we're chatting and they talk so much about how their job has to do with, with psychology and making sure that every player is, is happy and, and performing at their best. And there are different ways to get the best out of players. Some you need to be really sensitive, whatever it is. Right. So I'm, I'm looking at 1980. And at one point you leave the team for non-support and lack of confidence from your manager. You would never hear that nowadays. The manager's not supporting you. Can, can you uncover that one for me in terms of, what happened there? And of course you, you came back soon after, but what was the story there? Well, in 1979, I had 20 no decisions. Okay. I came from the American league where I was averaging about 290 innings, went to the national league averaging two thirty two forty. 240. Uh, I just felt, and I had sat down with Chuck Tanner. I sat down with Harley Peterson, the general manager. And I just told him, you know, I, I want to pitch every fourth day or fifth day. And I didn't feel like they were getting the best out of me. So that's what I ended up doing. I ended up walking away uh, for about a week or so and uh, came back. And, you know, it was a touchy situation. But Chuck and I, you know, we talked about it. And uh, I was just, I guess I was uh, was crying a little bit. They said, cry, Levin. That's okay. You know, I, I stood up for what I believed in. Uh, I kind of made my point. I went back. I even at, at, at the end of the 1980 season, I got traded 
to uh, the Cleveland Indians. And, uh, you know, it's just the game. It don't, uh, don't, you know, I, I'm Dutch, I'm stubborn. And at that time I was very stubborn. And competitive. And, and, you know, the reality of a league now that you had to, you know, kind of take understanding as far as the, the taking the pitchers out at a certain particular, you know, particular time, they're going to do a double switch or they're going to pitch it for you all in the American, you know, there already was early on by, by the mid seventies, you had the advent of the DH and you could stay in there and stuff like that. So uh, I can see where the frustration uh, had to be dramatic. Uh, nowadays, it's quite the contrary. I think guys would take a week off, Scotty B, if they were playing too much. They'd be the other way around. They're like calling their agent going, wait a second. I just All played 12 right. games in a row. Yeah, think about this. You know, as a pitcher, I felt I was not being used. And don't take me out. If I understood being taken out in the sixth inning, because I wasn't a good hitter. But why do I have to rest five or six days in between right. starts? You know, well, you could use me every fifth day for sure, but not just sixth and seventh day. But think about it as a hitter. You come up to the big leagues, okay? You got a guy like Willie Stargell in front of you. Yeah, you you go down to the minor leagues and you tear it up. But when you get to the big leagues, think of all those guys that had to sit behind Cal Ripken or, you know, Wade Boggs and stuff like that. You want that opportunity to play, but sometimes it isn't there. It might be with another club. You know, there's 30 clubs. And, yeah. uh, but you want that opportunity. And, you know, when, oh, when you came up, you didn't get that opportunity on a regular basis until you got over to Miami. Yeah. That's true. I always wonder just because it's individuals, you don't hear about it often. It probably happens more frequently than we think with players and agents nowadays. And I'm wondering if it was the same back then, where if you're in a situation where you're either not happy with the playing time or you feel like you're going to be stuck behind someone forever, I mean, you only get one life. I would be, I don't want to say demanding a trade, but I would be saying, hey, I need to make sure that I'm doing the best that I can in the big leagues. I've only got one shot at this. So did you come across that often? Did you ever go to the front office and say, hey, I'd like to move to a different spot that's going to utilize me better? Uh, As a pitcher, no. (laughs) But, (laughs) but, uh, you know what? No, I mean, you know, sometimes you get traded. It's the best thing that sometimes happens to you. It wakes your butt up, you know. Maybe you can become complacent. Maybe you maybe you don't like the environment you're in. There's a lot of guys that do that. Sometimes change is good. Is it not all? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I went all the way to Japan and, you know, then, you know, back, Major League Japan, back to the Major League, back to Japan. So, you know, baseball is, I'll never forget, you know, the, you know, what, what was uh, they called? Uh, I think it was Boog, maybe Boog Powell, you know have bat, we'll travel. You know what I mean? And, and you had arm, we'll travel. And it was an incredible arm and an incredible determination. As Scotty said right off the bat, over 5,000 innings. I mean, I, I really appreciate that because I hated pitchers uh, overall. And I and hate the long way. You know I'm kidding. But I appreciated my guys and and and, and guys that were, were durable. Uh, speaking of that, today's baseball in general, um, your thoughts on it. You've covered it. You still cover it um, from young guys to, to, you know, to the Scherzers and, and, uh, and, the, and the pitchers now a hundred pitches. Oh my gosh. You know, it's over the top, you know, and, and all of that. I remember Louis Tian, you know, who, who mentored you too uh, and played alongside with you uh, said, man, if I didn't get the close 300 innings, I, I felt terrible. So, 
what's your feeling on that? And you understand it because of the monies and, and the agents and, and the protection. I, I, I don't agree with anything that's going on in the game. The analytics part, the pitch count, when they put that first in as a broadcaster, you try to explain to people that, uh, you know, there are, there are horses out there. The Verlanders are still there. The Scherzers are there. Guys like that. Uh, DeGrom, if he stays healthy, they're, they're still the workhorses. But these players to date, I don't think, there's too much analytics. The start. I'm with the Twins in spring training for three weeks. I watch these guys work out. They wonder why the Tommy John is, is happening day in and day out. They're lifting weights. They're contracting that muscle in your elbow. And then to throw a baseball, it's the opposite. It's the elasticity. We never had weight rooms in the 70s and 80s until, you know, Canseco and the steroids mm-hmm. stuff yeah. came in. But, you know what, it... it it, uh, the analytics telling me that I couldn't face a hitter for the third time in a lineup. I wasn't smart enough to remember what maybe he did against me the first two times. The pitch count, come on. You know, it's, it's innings, it's pitches under duress. If I throw 100 pitches in five innings, well, there's pop, I'm, under, I'm under duress. So guys don't attack the strike zone. They don't trust their stuff anymore. Every count is three, two, you know, and on the hitter side, you know, you got to look at a piece of paper where you got to play. Come on. In all the shifts, hopefully they'll eliminate that and play some old time baseball again. Will it ever get back the way it was? I don't think so because it's got to start from the minor leagues. You got to teach these young kids that your foundation or your legs. I'm the pitching coach for the Dutch team, which is going to be coming up here and in March, we're going to be going to Taiwan. I'm going to be working with my pitchers. Trust the fastball. You see the little box that you're in right there? There's a, there's a fastball down and away to a right-hander. Mm-hmm. Ted Williams said if every pitch was him to him down and away here, he would hit 230, 240, 250 in that little box right there. What's that tell you as a pitcher? Control your fastball. Talked to Don Drysdale when I was 19 years old in the dugout in Anaheim because my Mar- pitching coach, Marv Grissom, was a new Don Drysdale. I listened on Don Drysdale talk about pitching for 15 minutes. I didn't say a word. Listened. And you got to find, you got to pick brains of guys that have been through the battles. And I don't know if these young kids have enough, uh, whatever to, uh, to, to say, listen, you know, I have to do it my way. You tell them Wade Boggs or Ishiro that they got to hit a certain way and they can't, you know, whatever, but, but that strike zone right there, that's what you want to control. Off the fastball, and then the curveball is different. So, what are the replies you get from the youngsters? I'm there. Uh, how many? Joe Ryan's the only one I can be honest with you that actually wanted to learn. He wanted to learn the grip of the curveball, how I held it. Everybody holds it different. Movement on the fastball. I've talked to him about needs a two seamer. Fastball's pretty straight. You know, these hitters today they're bigger and stronger. And, they're, they're, you know, you throw a fastball at 100 miles an hour down the middle, they're going to hit a 120 miles out somewhere. But you got to be able to hit your spots, and you got to be able to not be afraid to pitch inside once in a while. And the umpire's not going to throw you out if you go inside, as long as you're not trying to hit somebody. If you're going to hit somebody, hit them in the hip. All right. That's, yeah. that's the last thing to leave. <laughs> that's the last thing, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, miss miss I, on the hit. Yeah, right. I tried to be quick and, and use my big butt. So when those guys tried to hit me in the hip, it ended up hitting the butt, and, I, it, and then I just looked like 
like Tom Baylor taught me the groove, may he rest in peace, because never just kind of run to first base, baby, or walk, never go down, you know, brush the, the, the trainer out, I'm fine. Remember how Baylor, you could hit him, you could hit him I, in the wrist, and, and he'd look at you and just walk yeah, to first base. I hit him, I hit him one time, of course you had to pitch him inside, he liked of to course. I hit him one time and it got caught between his armpit and his his chest, and he kind of looked at me and threw me the ball back. Like, <laughs> that was the groove. <laughs> ball had a dent that, in it, you know. I, I, I want to ask you because it's you know again him being again one of the the story players there during that period of the definitely you know late seventies eighties. Uh, your your best matchups, you know, some of the great hitters that you had to face one on one or in a, or in a pinch situation and duress, as you were said earlier. Uh, what, what was some memorable? you know, uh, one-on-ones that you had, or maybe continual throughout your long career that you kept on resurfacing with that particular guy. You know, I, 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 again, I came up at a young age. I at 19, I retired when I was 42. I can honestly say, yeah, there's matchups that you have, but I looked at that lineup before I pitched one through nine. I never took anybody for granted. You know, I knew that the Mattingly's and the Bretts and the Boggs, they're going to get their hits, you know. Uh, but you try not to let them beat you with the game online. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but I respected every hitter that was in that lineup because when, once you get to the big leagues, baby, you're one of the best. There's only like 600, whatever, you know, there is 750 major league players. And uh, as Jane Forbes Clark said, you know, Less than 1% ever make it to the Hall of Fame. So God has been very, very good to me. Hey, before O gets to his big question at the end, I want to spend a minute on the television career because it was long. It was incredibly impactful. So take me through how much that meant to you to be a broadcaster when you mentioned how the Dodgers were such a big part of your childhood and your family listening to Vin Scully. So how much that meant, how much you enjoyed that portion of your career, because, you know, many players after their career, and we talked to many former ball players, some are doing amazing things. Some are lost. Some are um, just focusing on charities because, you know, they, they made their money and they don't want to be involved in the game. So, so take me through what that experience was like. And also just a little cherry on top. And maybe I'm being bold here, but we were joking about the salaries I think you might have made more in television than you did in the playing <laughs> career as you guys were fighting for salaries when you were in the 70s. Well, first of all, you know what the players, the Major League Baseball Players Alumni Association has done. It's helped so many people. Of course, you got the bat program. There's a lot of bat programs out there. When somebody gets out of baseball, you don't know how you're going to react. Some guys spend seven, eight, nine, ten years in the minor leagues, never get to the what they call the show. You know, so you go through a lot of frustrations and god bless everybody that put on a major league uniform whether it's in the big leagues or the minor leagues uh, as far as the broadcasting i had the opportunity and i mentioned my pops we listened to ben scully describe games i took every game that i did and i can only say this i had a i had a, 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 a index card on every player that the twins played against so i had the history of every player but i always looked and this is the way that I believe that Mr. Scully did games, that you tried to find a positive out of a negative. There was somebody that just worked from 8 to 5, big baseball fan, sat down with his family at 5 o'clock, had dinner, 
7 o'clock, maybe grabbed the open up a beer, sat down in a lounge chair, turned the ball game on. He did not need to hear when he's trying to feed a family that a baseball player is having a bad day. So you had to find a positive out of that negative. Nobody wants to make errors. Pitchers don't want to hang a breaking ball and the guy hits it 400 feet. It's part of the game. It's the game. And that's all it is. It's not life. It's the game. Maybe life to us when we were players, that was our life. But to the fan, it's a game. So treat it as a game and love it as a game. I think that's a great comment because, uh, you know, again, going to where the game has gotten into this analytics, it's almost, you know, crosses over, Bert, into uh, analyzing the player and every wrong move and why they do that. And, you know, and, and that's why I love the old school guys, like you mentioned, like Vince Cully. Uh, obviously, former players get it more. I mean, one of my favorites is Hawk Harrelson, you know, who, who made it fun. Uh, you know, Bob Euchre. And, and those guys brought to life a game, but also made it lighthearted because baseball – you know, needs to be that as, as a great pastime that it is. And then, you know, when I was uh, had an opportunity, Fox gave me a, a telestrator and I got to circle people for many years. You know, that was circle me, Bert. People bring signs to the ballpark, you know, and say, hey, circle me, Bert. I'm from, you know, uh, uh, Duluth, Minnesota. You right. Know, watch the game. And that kind of kind of came with the Minnesota Twins for a long time. And I, I missed that. I miss the the one-on-one relationship with the fans. Baseball is a fans game. And uh, you meet so many great people that uh, love the game of baseball, whether their team wins or loses, they're there for supporting them. Well, listen, uh, you've been phenomenal, obviously, that we expected you to be. And also, you know, right already into the ninth inning. We didn't have to call in the bullpen around the sixth inning for you. So <laughs> no, great. no, yeah. play that game. <laughs> but, uh, uh, finishing off strong, you know, the no way Jose. I mean, it's just kind of a fun story that you might remember or something, you know, out of this world on off the field happened to you or you saw it. Give, give us a, give us a good story from that, that illustrious long career you had. Well, there's so many good ones, but you know, we mentioned Willie Stargell earlier. Well, pops had a lot of, we call Willie Stargell pops. We had, he had so much fun on the field. And I remember one time I was struggling out on the mound and, uh, he, Chuck, I think, you know, said, go talk to him. Let that guy in the bullpen get, you know, a little more, a couple throws in. So he comes out, and, of course, I, I think probably, you know, some foam was coming out of my mouth, and he looked at me. He says, you okay? So what are you doing out here? I mean, I'm going to try to calm it down. Said, you, see me, you see me hanging around first base? Get your butt back over there. He just starts laughing. He goes, oh, you're, you're – you're in there to baby. I'm telling Chuck, you're staying in the game. And he ran back <laughs> first. But uh, the camaraderie that you have with your teammates, that, that I think I still miss that. You know, the, mm-hmm. the going walking in the clubhouse and, and seeing who you could fool with or the determination that you have to have, pre- the preparation you have to have to get ready for your next start or your next at-bat, you know, who, if you got a chance to play that night. So, yeah, it, it's, it's a great game. I love it, Bert. Thank you so much. Jim. This was a classic. We appreciate the time. And uh, thanks for hanging out with us in the lounge. Scott, thanks. Oh, love you you're guys. You're always welcome. You're always God welcome laughs. in the lounge. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, buddy.
Okay. Oh, you know what we do here? We pick some of our favorite parts of what we just went through. And with Burt Blylevin, for me, I enjoy the research process because I don't know all of these players from front to back. And to be real, you know, based on age and whatever else, sometimes I have not experienced one of these former players' careers. So for me, it was interesting to see some beef and some adversity that Burt went through throughout his career and to, you know, poke at him and say, hey, like you had you know, beef with an organization, you left a team, all of that, because I know more Bert, the broadcaster, like I mentioned before we got this thing going. So that was interesting for me. And of course, this is the perfect time to get more inside of a story like that, because they're far removed from the case at this point. Yeah, you know, for me, it was different because I'm older than you, Scotty. So for me, what Bert Blylevin meant to me was an incredible pitcher who, who lasted for so long, jumped around with different teams, had an incredible curveball. And, you know, create the nickname, you know, Berkeley home by 11, you know, and, and the whole nine. But the reality is that I was very intrigued. And as you mentioned, you know, that he kind of wore maybe not his heart on his sleeve, but his baseball on his sleeve. And, <laughs> and he couldn't let things go sometimes. And it caused, you know, some issues as far as, you know, contentious scenarios with teams and also just his like dutch mentality of like i want to get this done he talked so beautifully about his family and his father and and how they supported him that uh he was definitely a competitor maybe sometimes to a detriment but overall what what an incredible player for so long and uh and and a true uh, legend of the game emotional at times and i appreciate that i like that especially now on the back end to learn about it because most um, nobody's perfect so this helps you know whatever you go through it's not like yeah sure great to where you're trying to go This week in baseball, September 28th, 1941, Ted Williams of the Red Sox, six for eight, doubleheader against the Philadelphia A's to finish the season at 406. No player has hit 406 for an entire full regular season since then. And it might be a minute, but just honoring the great Ted Williams. And, you know, his name comes up sometimes nowadays when discussing a Juan Soto, right? Where you go, hey, Soto is the modern Ted Williams, but. Yeah. Um, for those that didn't know Ted Williams career, go back and take a peek at the stats. Ridiculous. Completely different time period. But I like when we bring up his name, comparing Soto, not necessarily just for the comp, but just to learn about, you know, where this game was and who were some of the uh, cornerstones of the time period there in the mid 1900s to bring this game into, you know, further popularity. I, you know, I tell you what, and, and you make a good point that it was, yeah, it's a different time period, but, but, you know, a couple of things to take into consideration. He was ahead of his game. I mean, he was a way ahead of his time. There's just no doubt about it. His swing, his stature, his style, the eyesight that he had, how well he can pinpoint in the baseball, how well he could hit through, believe it or not, uh, the one, the first player to have a, a shift on him. So uh, this guy was phenomenal. And the fact that he just could have sat and he was at 401. He said, you kidding me, sit to hit the 400? No, I'm playing the doubleheader, and he raises average five points. Nobody has come close. Forget about 406. Nobody's hit 400. The closest was the 390 by one George Brett many, many years ago in the 80s, and uh, and that was it. So to me, Dead Williams could have played in any era. Yeah, tough stat to touch. Teddy <laughs> ball game. Any stuff. Oh, and one more thing, Scotty. Oh, by the way, he missed several years due to the war in the 40s. So you're talking about a guy that, uh, you know, probably would have had another at least 100 more home runs, uh, a plethora of more RBIs and and just titles all, you know. So uh, you can just take your hat off to Teddy Ballgame. He was truly one of the top five greatest hitters of all time. 
Yeah, and that's why the stats help tell the story, but I go beyond that for reasons like you're mentioning. I mean, the home run total isn't what it should be, and it wasn't because of injuries. It was because of other reasons that really served our country and were more hero at the time. (laughs) Exactly. The word hero comes to mind in true form. So, hey, we'll see you next week. The lounge is closed. The Legends Lounge Podcast is brought to you by Major League Alumni Marketing. Hit us with questions or comments at legendslounge at mlbpaa.com. Check out our memorabilia at mlamauthentics.com. Later, Legends. Baseball Legends Lounge is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.